Good morning. Um, a very warm welcome to the 2012 Annual Lecture of the British Fulbright Scholars Association. Uh, my name is Anna Beer and I'm particularly pleased to welcome you to the Department for Continuing Education in Oxford and for those who saved lunch to Kellogg College, Oxford, because these two places, the Department and the College, act as bridges between the academic world and the wider world. And for me, that's a lot of what Fulbright scholarship is all about. It is particularly fitting, therefore, to see such a wonderful audience drawn from Fulbrighters old and new and from throughout the world. And as I say, you are all very warmly welcome. We are honoured to have as our speaker Sir John Holmes. It's very rare that one can say with genuine truth that his li a person's list of achievements are too long to itemise, <laughs> and I, I simply cannot do justice to Sir John's achievements in the public world. Enough to say he has been Under Secretary General for Humanitarian Affairs and Emergency Relief Coordinator at the UN. He's been an ambassador, British ambassador twice in Lisbon and Paris. Principal Private Secretary to two Prime Ministers on both sides of the House, Labour and Conservative, no mean feat, I tell you, and is currently Director of the Ditchley Foundation, whose aims are very close to those of Senator Fulbright, and it may be that Sir John will offer a few words about the Ditchley Foundation this morning, in fact, nearly this afternoon. Who better, then, with this lifetime of experience, to ask, when can international intervention be justified and effective? Thank you, Sir John. Well, thank you very much, uh, Anna, um, and good morning, everybody. Uh, and first of all, um, thank you to the Association for inviting me to deliver this annual lecture. I'm very honoured and delighted to do so. Um, if I may say so, it's very brave of you all to come out on a Sunday morning, or the cold Sunday morning, to listen to a rather serious lecture on an important topic, but not one which is necessarily a great deal of fun. Uh, as you've heard, my chosen subject is international intervention. And it's been a fraught and sensitive topic in international affairs for many years, and unfortunately, uh, it shows no sign of going out of the news. We continue to face harrowing situations around the world where the clamor to do something can become almost deafening. And Syria is only the latest example of this. So the need for clarity of thought and calm reflection on this issue has probably never been greater. So what I'm going to try to do is to look at the issues around this in a fairly dispassionate way. But I have to say at the same time, it's an issue which is driven by strong emotions, by passion on both sides. First of all, um, on the favorable side, if you like, the emotional response to suffering around the world, and then secondly, on the other side, the fierce resistance to interference in the affairs of others and worry about the ethical considerations uh, as well. So I'm going to approach the subject rather from the point of view of a practitioner, not particularly an academic point of view or a philosophical one, but as for any good academic subject, there is a need, first of all, to define one's terms. International intervention can, of course, take many forms. It ranges from diplomatic consultation and public exhortation at the softest end of the spectrum to full-blown military invasion at the other. And there are many potential stops on the way between those two, including efforts to prevent conflict before it starts, economic sanctions to try and influence behavior, mediation between warring parties even after conflict has started, 
Secret interventions, including these days cyber interventions, for example, Stuxnet, which affected Iran's nuclear efforts. The agreed introduction of UN or other peacekeeping forces during or after a conflict. And increasingly these days, remote attacks by drones or other modern devices. Now these are all interventions from outside with the aim of producing a desired outcome. And they can all be more or less effective depending on the circumstances. But what people usually mean by international intervention is the introduction of outside military forces against the wishes of the government of the country concerned and sometimes against the wishes of other actors on the ground too. And the debate has also tended to focus in recent years on the concept of humanitarian intervention. In other words, the use of outside force to stop unacceptable suffering in a particular country. And it's that kind of intervention on which I'm going to focus on th th this morning too, because it's the most controversial and the most sensitive, and the one where domestic and international arguments are at their most difficult to perhaps at their fiercest as well. But I emphasize again that other variants of intervention are available, and indeed are almost always being employed in all the situations we'll be talking about. Because it's vital not to leave the impression that if we're not sending in the troops, we are not necessarily doing anything at all. Now, the issue of humanitarian intervention is one uh, at the same time simple and very complicated. The simplicity comes from the imperative felt by all of us to stop atrocities when we hear of them and when we see them on our televisions or through the social media. If we have the capacity to do so, how can we not act in response to that? And this immediate response, however, can cause us to gloss over the question of what we think gives us the right to act. Now, this question of what to do about terrible events in another country has come up many times in history. But the main starting point for current thinking, I guess, is the massacre of one community by another in Rwanda in 1994, the famous genocide, infamous, I should say, when the international community wrung its hands collectively but effectively did nothing to stop what was happening. Some 800,000 people, mostly Tutsis, were killed by rival Hutus over a period of 100 days, despite global condemnation and the presence at the beginning of a UN force containing French and Belgian troops. And a strong and widespread and understandable reaction afterwards was never again. The international community could henceforth not allow itself to stand idly by while a country's citizens were slaughtered. The 1995 horror the following year of Srebrenica in the Balkans reinforced the sentiment that something new and more effective was needed. If you remember, Bosnian Serbs massacred thousands of Bosnian Muslims, despite the fact that the UN had declared the town a safe area with a Dutch UN unit close by at the time. But many governments in the developing world, with the support of powers like Russia and China, continued to take a more cautious view than that expressed in that expression, never again. They took the view that while events like the Rwandan genocide clearly had to be condemned, and there had been a case for action, the key principles of the primacy of national sovereignty and the unacceptability of interference in the internal affairs of another country should not be prejudiced. Humanitarian or human rights concerns should not become an intervener's charter, providing an excuse for Western countries to invade other countries whenever they felt like it, without regard to international law or the role of the UN Security Council. And powers like Russia and China felt particularly strongly about this and the developing world because they saw Western countries as operating double standards in their foreign policy. 
condemning and wanting to intervene in those countries they didn't like for political or other reasons, and letting off lightly or altogether others they did support or where perhaps they had large commercial or security interests. And these arguments echo a wider, long-standing argument about the universal applicability of human rights standards and the legitimacy of the international community in insisting on their relevance to the internal affairs of all countries. This debate is by no means resolved. But the norms of international behavior have in recent years been codified in ways which assume that national sovereignty is limited and that it certainly doesn't mean just the right of the government of a state to do what it likes within its own borders. It is now generally, and I think rightly assumed, that the international community does have a legitimate interest in what is going on inside countries, not least because internal problems and abuses can often become threats to international peace and security. Now, as part of the debate which followed Rwanda and Srebrenica, former British Prime Minister Tony Blair, in a speech in Chicago in April 99, which is, by the way, after I stopped working for him, so I don't claim any <laughs> responsibility or blame, he set out what became known, at least for a while, as the Blair Doctrine. And the context, as some of you may remember, was the NATO intervention in Kosovo of 1999, and the bombing campaign against Serbia, which was not at the time producing the hoped-for results. So Mr. Blair spent a lot of the speech defending the Kosovo operation as a just war against the evil of ethnic cleansing. But he also put this in the broader context of the pressing need for new rules for international action in a post-Cold War age of international interdependence. He emphasized that the principle of non-interference had to have its limits. Equally, he acknowledged that we couldn't right every wrong in the world. We therefore had to decide what we could do and should do and what we could not do and should not do. And he set out five major considerations which in his view would have to be satisfied before we, and I think by we he meant the major pillars of the international community, intervened in another country militarily. First of all, are we sure of our case? Secondly, have we exhausted all the diplomatic alternatives and given peace every chance? Thirdly, are there military operations we can sensibly and prudently undertake? Fourthly, are we prepared for the long term after the immediate military operation? And fifthly, do we have national interests actually involved? He added that while the United Nations had to remain central to this, new ways had also to be found to make the UN and the Security Council work better to avoid Cold War-style deadlocks in the Security Council in particular. Now, this speech helped prompt the then UN Secretary General, Kofi Annan, to establish an international commission on intervention and state sovereignty. And it was this commission's report in 2001 on what they called the responsibility to protect, which cleverly turned the sovereignty argument on its head. They argued that sovereignty should not be seen as giving, giving governments freedom to act without check inside their borders, but instead as conferring a responsibility on them for the welfare of the citizens of their own state. Governments should be helped to exercise this responsibility wherever possible. But ultimately, where a government proved unable or unwilling to exercise that responsibility to protect its own population, or is actually abusing its own people, the principle of non-intervention should yield to the principle of international responsibility. 
And this commission attached four conditions to any intervention, which were similar to the criteria set out by Tony Blair, but not quite the same. The first was that the intentions of those intervening had to be right, had to be just. The second was that it had to be a last resort. The third was that only proportional means should be used. And the fourth was that there should be reasonable prospects of success. <coughs> and this report also emphasized in a different way from Tony Blair the crucial role of the Security Council in authorizing any military intervention. Now, after a long and difficult debate, the UN World Summit of 2005 unanimously agreed to support this notion of the responsibility to protect, or R2P, as it became increasingly commonly known. And picking up where the International Commission had left off, paragraphs 138 and 139 of that concluding document spelled out that it was for each state to protect its population from genocide, war crimes, ethnic cleansing, and crimes against humanity. And that the international community should above all encourage and help states to fulfill this responsibility. But again, it added crucially that if states had manifestly failed to protect their populations from these crimes, the international community then had the responsibility to use appropriate peaceful means to make them do so, and if all else failed, to intervene in other ways through the Security Council. Now, this was a significant step, indeed in many ways a breakthrough uh, in international readiness to establish when intervention might be justified. It was greeted with a certain amount of jubilation by campaigners for humanitarian intervention. But it quickly became clear that this was not the end of the argument. Many states which had agreed to the World, outcome, World Summit outcome document seemed to suffer almost immediately from buyer's remorse. They wanted to forget or ignore what they signed up to because of their fear about how it might be used in the future. The context was, of course, the disastrous aftermath of the invasion of Iraq by a US-led coalition without specific Security Council authorization, and the continuing military intervention in Afghanistan. Now, neither of these was really presented as a humanitarian intervention as such, and the intervention in Afghanistan was authorized by the United Nations in 2001 after 9-11, although on counter-terrorism rather than humanitarian grounds. But this did not prevent even that operation from proving increasingly difficult and controversial, as indeed it remains today. The costed lies and the staggering expense of these interventions in Iraq and Afghanistan, together with their, at best, limited results, has strongly shaped the debate ever since. And there's been a long and continuing discussion since 2005 about how the responsibility to protect, how R2P should be turned into reality. There's a strong group in favor of regular and robust intervention to make the world a better place. And they include, for example, former Australian Foreign Minister Gareth Evans, who's written a powerful book on the subject. The UN experts have tried to take some of the toxicity out of this debate by stressing again that R2P is not just about, or even mainly about, military intervention. The aim is above all to help governments fulfill their obligations and responsibilities and sound the alarm early enough so that more peaceful means can be used. And that kind of emphasis on the, the fact that military intervention is only very much the end step and the, the last resort has helped to calm the debate to some extent. But the objections based on these sacred principles of sovereignty and non-interference have certainly not gone away, as we can see in the Security Council today over Syria. 
And however valid these points may be about doing everything possible to avoid a situation where armed action comes onto the agenda, the issue of military intervention, in intervention and when it's appropriate can't be ducked. So how, how confident can we now be that the international community would act to prevent another Rwandan genocide? Have we in fact gone backwards because of this toxic legacy of Iraq and Afghanistan? Or have we on the contrary unleashed in R2P a diplomatic monster which we can't control and which may lead us back into more international adventures than we can deal with? Why should the West always want to seem to take on the role of a global policeman? And can we in any case afford it these days, either in terms of resources or the effects on our image and standing in the world? Now, before coming on to the practical and contemporary cases of Libya and Syria, which I'll do, let me just first talk about some of the particular points of contention of both principle and practice which tend to arise over in humanitarian intervention. First of all, what do we mean by humanitarian in this context? Obviously, it refers to avoidance of loss of life, uh, civilian life, and suffering. But this only takes you so far. How great does the threat to civilians have to be, and who is going to judge the extent and nature of this threat? I think it's worth noting that it's usually politicians and sometimes human rights campaigners, and only rarely humanitarians or humanitarian aid organizations who press for military intervention on humanitarian grounds. The humanitarian community itself is often not at all convinced, except perhaps in absolutely clear-cut and appalling cases like that of Rwanda, that military intervention is going to be the right answer. They fear, as do many others, the law of unintended consequences, which often seems to work particularly fiercely in, cames, in cases of armed intervention in other countries. Most obviously, military action designed to protect one group of civilians may well end up harming and killing another group of civ civilians, however inadvertently. So whose lives are worth more? How are we going to strike the balance? Humanitarians also observe that those who argue most strongly for humanitarian intervention in a particular case often seem to have political motives as well, domestic or international. Second is a critical question of who should decide when a situation merits intervention and what should be done. The obvious answer, as we all know, is the UN Security Council. It has the mandate and it has the legitimacy to do that. And that's the ideal scenario which we'd all, we should always be looking for. But if the Security Council cannot agree, as so often, what then? Ultimately, is not decision-making in this area always likely to be driven by politics rather than the view of the lawyers about the Security Council? The purists say no. In these circumstances where the Security Council does not authorize intervention, there can be no legal intervention by definition, and therefore there should be no intervention at all. Others suggest that legitimate intervention can still be possible on certain conditions. If an agreement in the Security Council is unreasonably blocked, for example, by one or more states acting from motives of obvious self-interest or a close bilateral relationship with the government of the country in question, and if there is wide international support for the idea of action, and especially if there is support from within the country concerned, from its neighbors, and perhaps also from the relevant regional organization, then the uh, intervention can be regarded as legitimate. And the intervention in Kosovo in 1999 is usually what's cited in this context. It was not approved by the Security Council because it was thought, no doubt correctly at the time, that the Russians would veto any resolution 
because of their close relationship with the Serbs. But because the case for it seems strong, because the Kosovars themselves were pressing for intervention, and because it had wide European and international support otherwise, and I suppose, if we're honest, because ultimately it seemed to succeed, it was and is widely seen as legitimate, even if not strictly legal. I personally agree with the view that there can be cases where intervention can be vital and justifiable, even without Security Council authorization. To make the fate of a group of people suffering at risk of genocide, for example, depend entirely on the temporary lineup of votes in the Security Council seems somehow too much. But this is an awkward and uncomfortable conclusion from many points of view. Governments now are rightly more worried than before about being on the right side of the, their legal advisers since Iraq. And the military themselves, far from being, as you might imagine, gung-ho to get on with things, whatever the lawyers say, are increasingly keen to make sure that they can say their actions are lawful for fear of finding themselves in front of the International Criminal Court otherwise. At the very least, when the Security Council is not authorized action, the burden of proof has to be much higher, and the support in the international community particularly clear, including within the Security Council, even if a so-called unreasonable veto is going to prevent full agreement. But even then, I have to say, the gap between legitimacy and legality remains an uncomfortable one, and not one accepted at all by many lawyers. The third related question often ignored is who is actually going to carry out the intervention, assuming one is agreed? Security Council authorization of military inter intervention may, in some circumstances, be the beginning of the argument and not the end of it. Some country or countries or some organization is going to have to agree to put their soldiers in harm's way, to bear the financial cost, which may be very considerable, unless it's turned into a UN peacekeeping operation where the burden can be shared and to withstand all the undoubted political and other pressures which are going to be brought to bear. Because there's no United Nations or other international standing force which can be used, and little or no prospect of such a thing being agreed or established, however good the idea might be in principle. So for the moment, the political and military reality remains that if something is going to be done about many of these situations, it will have to be done by Western countries or organizations such as NATO which naturally increases the suspicion in other parts of the world that the whole business is just some kind of Western conspiracy to impose their own views and deal with regimes they don't like under the cloak of humanitarian concerns. But regional organizations such as the African Union and the Arab League are gradually becoming more active and more vocal in this area. And their support for any intervention in their regions is increasingly becoming a sine qua non, as we have seen. There have indeed been African interventions in the affairs of neighboring countries from time to time, though without much success. But in general, we need to accept that the regional organizations don't have the unity or the capacity to do much in reality themselves, certainly not meaningful military intervention without huge support from elsewhere, and again, that usually means the West. Now, first, and in some ways most importantly, there is always the question of whether we really understand the situation and all its local dynamics in the country we're talking about well enough to make a military inter intervention effective, and just as important, sustain that intervention over time. Can we really tell the good guys from the bad guys? And do we know how to build a nation back up after we've intervened? 
The point is if the West decides to intervene and can get together a force, it can usually get through the military phase reasonably well and reasonably quickly because of its military capacity and its technological advance. And we saw this in Iraq and Afghanistan. But the Western countries have proved singularly inept at the next step of creating a local political consensus, using local capacities, and establishing a sustainable economic, political, and social system. Moreover, the military capacity and technology which enable you to win the battle are much less effective when it comes to holding territory in hostile circumstances and to waging so-called asymmetrical warfare against non-state armed resistance groups. And the examples, again, of both Iraq and Afghanistan are eloquent in this regard. Now, this is not because those concerned in these things were stupid or incompetent, although bad mistakes were made in both cases. We really need to understand better how genuinely difficult it is to come in from the outside and to build a new system on the ruins of the old in a situation where the nuances, for example, of the existing economic and social networks are hard to understand and even harder to work with successfully. This is tough even if you use the advice of the experts who know the country concerned and study its history well. If those experts are systematically ignored or belittled, as we've seen in some cases, it becomes almost impossible. It's sometimes asked how the old colonial powers manage these things. Those who succeeded did not ignore local knowledge. They were there for the long term, and they could usually manage to impose their will and create functional systems in the end including through cunning co-option of parts of the previous local power structures. But they were also ready to use a level of violence and brutality with no outside media, with, with no outside media to watch, which would be very hard to conceal or get away with today. So there are limited lessons we can learn from that. Current intervening countries or alliances actually have no desire to stay long enough in the country in which they're intervening to understand or change everything. It costs too much in blood and treasure, apart from anything else. And there's no actual colonial instinct at work, whatever people may say from time to time. And the media are rightly watching very closely. So for good reasons, current interveners are looking for quick wins and effective exit strategies from day one, even if they may in reality be there for 10 years. This reduces the chances of success from the start. Intervening countries always tend to make the fatal mistake of assuming that they are building from scratch and can and therefore must impose new models and systems like Western-style democracy in a few years. And it's therefore hardly surprising that they're not doing very well. Nation building is extremely difficult in the best of circumstances. It's almost impossible if you're not working with the grain of what's there already. But the United Nations sometimes has a better chance of success in this area, using international peacekeeping forces who are there with the consent of the host countries. It has a decent track record in some places, for example, in Timor and Liberia. They can stay longer without becoming part of the problem rather than part of the solution. So there's a clear difference between coercive interventions and consensual ones involving peacekeepers. But even a consensual intervention is no guarantee of success, as we can see in other cases like that of the Democratic Republic of Congo, where a UN force has been in place for 12 years without yet being able to create the conditions which would enable it to leave. I fear also we've been relying excessively on the device of elections. Elections are clearly important, 
It's hard to see how a new government can be given legitimacy in any other way. And watching people who have never had the chance to vote before stand in line to do so with great enthusiasm is a humbling and moving experience. But I think we have been guilty of attaching too much importance to the act of voting in elections and not enough to the hard slog of building up the kind of civil society institutions and traditions which are the underpinnings of a genuine democracy. Elections are only the start of any process, not the end of one. And Western interveners have often seemed not to be as aware of that as they should have been. Now, these major points of contention about intervention do not necessarily undermine the case for it in the right circumstances, but they do bring out some of the difficulties of the concept and the many pitfalls in its practical implementation. And that's the background to the debates which were reignited in earnest in 2011 and 2012 by the cases of first Libya and then Syria. So let me look at these in turn. Libya was in many cases, sorry, in many ways, the first action explicitly based on the responsibility to protect principles since they were adopted. The immediate aim of the NATO-led intervention in Libya was clearly humanitarian, to save the population of Benghazi and other rebel-held cities from imminent attack, and presumed, because explicitly threatened, massacre by Colonel Gaddafi's forces. The air operation was explicitly approved by the Security Council in Resolution 1973, not least because of regional support, particularly from the Arab League. It was being called for by the rebel forces on the ground. It therefore had legitimacy as well as legality, if we can somehow maintain this distinction. And there were forces from Western and other countries willing to carry it out. And the military campaign itself was not entirely straightforward. The rebel forces were disorganized and ill-armed, to say the least. Not all supposedly surgical air attacks hit their targets, although the mistakes and the civilian casualties were reduced uh, compared to previous efforts. But gradually, the military intervention did make the essential difference. The rebels took over the country. The Gaddafi regime was defeated and destroyed. The immediate aim of saving the civilian population of Benghazi was certainly achieved. Few, if any, outside his immediate Libyan circle mourned for Colonel Gaddafi or regretted his departure from power. So, so far, so good. However, even in these apparently successful circumstances, significant questions still arose and arise. How deep was the international support for the operation? The Arab League support and assistance were for the most part theoretical. Some of those who voted for the Security Council resolution and even more, some of those who abstained, like Russia and China, afterwards either seemed less sure of their vote or actively regretted it. Russia and China in particular believed that they'd been duped. The aim of the operation had quickly changed, in practice if not in principle, from protection of civilians to regime change. Now against that it can be argued, it is argued, that they must have known what they were voting for, and that given the attitude and actions of the regime, the only effective way of protecting civilians was to get rid of it. But the fact remains, and it's an awkward fact, that the resolution said one thing and the outcome was another. How far did we know what we were really doing in Libya and whom we were helping? The rebels were very diverse in their outlook and motives, political, tribal, regional, or religious. And they had no real coherent political or other platform. In one sense, you could say that doesn't matter if the civilian lives we set out to save were saved. But were we in fact doing little more than supporting one side in a civil war whose real dynamics were lost on us? 
How can we ensure that those we are helping to install in power will be significantly better, including in behavior towards civilians, once they are in power than those they were try we were trying to depose? As such doubts have not been assuaged by the chaos and confusion in the months after the fall of the regime, with armed militias calling the shots, and in some cases taking brutal revenge on Gaddafi's supporters. The country is still a long way from settled stability, and civilians are still suffering in large numbers. The question also arises, why were we interested in, in intervening in Libya, but not apparently interested in doing so elsewhere in the region? And this argument can, of course, be extended to situations outside the region, such as Zimbabwe, a case people often, a case people often uh, raise. Where is a consistency? This is in many ways a particularly difficult question. Naturally, each case is different. There are many reasons why, for example, Bahrain is a completely separate case from Libya, or why should we, we should worry about the consequences of intervening in Syria and its immediate neighborhood much more than we did in the Libyan case, as we shall see. So how far does this question of consistency matter? Perfect consistency in foreign policy has never existed and is certainly unattainable. But there is, in my view, a requirement for a minimum of consistency and for the absence of two obvious double standards without which the motives of interveners are going to be even more suspect than they would be otherwise. The main answer given to the charge of inconsistency is that the impossibility of intervening everywhere doesn't mean you should not intervene anywhere, otherwise you're condemned to impotence in all circumstances. And this is a powerful argument. But in my mind, it's not powerful enough to still all doubts about why we choose one situation to intervene in which to intervene over others. We have to be able to produce some kind of convincing narrative about what we're doing and why. Now, in these circumstances, it's worth asking briefly how far the intervention in Libya matched up to the tests set by Tony Blair and the International Commission uh, 10 years previously. Were we sure of our case? Now, Gaddafi and his regime do not find many defenders, quite rightly, and saving Benghazi was relatively easy to agree with. But the doubts about the end game and the doubts about the nature and motives of the rebels meant that the case wasn't watertight. Had we exhausted all diplomatic options? There may not have been many in this case, given the nature of the regime and the threats they were making. And if Benghazi was to be saved, there was no time to negotiate. But the truth is we didn't really want to negotiate with Gaddafi anyway and from an early stage stuck to the mantra that nothing was possible unless he went. So a not completely satisfactory answer here either. Were there military operations we could sensibly and prudently undertake? Yes, I think there were, in the sense that we could conduct an air campaign at little risk to ourselves, not necessarily at little risk to those underneath, and to good effect on the ground. Ruling out a ground assault made achieving our military aims more difficult, but there were good reasons to avoid another Middle East quagmire. Were we prepared for the long term? The fact that it was an air intervention meant we were less directly responsible for what happened on the ground afterwards. And we could take the view that what followed was for the Libyans to decide rather than for ourselves and rather than get ourselves in Iraq or Afghan-style Afghan mess. So an exit strategy was in this sense easy. But standing back from the aftermath does leave awkward questions about whether we should have tried harder to ensure that what, was, what followed was satisfactory given the current difficulties in Libya. Were our intentions good, and did we have national interests involved? It's not obvious that we did follow national interests, at least in a narrow sense. 
Some people have pointed, as they did over Iraq, to Libyan oil or other commercial interests as possible motives. But if we really wanted to keep the international oil price down, or have access to Libyan oil in particular, a military campaign in Libya was far from the obvious way of achieving those aims. It was the most difficult and expensive you could have thought of. Nevertheless, it was certainly in our broad interest that democracy spread in the region and human rights more universally uh, respected was in our broad interest. There were reasons, these were reasons to support the Arab Spring in general, as well as supporting change in Libya. So overall, while there may have been domestic impulsions of, of various kinds behind the decision to intervene in Libya, I think the motivation was genuine and sincere. Was the use of force proportional to the aims? Here it seems to me the answer is clearly yes. Overall, therefore, the, liberation, the Libyan operation did and does seem to meet the RTP criteria reasonably well. That does not, of course, answer all the questions. The jury is necessarily out for the time being on whether overall the intervention and what it produced are, in the immortal words of Sellers and Yatesman in 1066 and all that, a good thing or not. One of its unintended consequences, the return to parts of West Africa, Mali in particular, of heavily armed Tuareg mercenaries and rebels, has certainly been a very bad thing for the stability of the region. In any case, the question arises whether the Libyan operation presages other similar operations in the future. Was it the first of a new generation of coercive interventions based on remote power rather than boots on the ground? Much cheaper and easier, at least for the intervening powers, than Iraq-style invasions, and with no complex about, we broke it, therefore we have to fix it? Or was it the last hurrah of international intervention in rarely to be repeated circumstances? The extreme reluctance to get involved militarily in Syria, which currently characterizes Western policy, may seem to support the second hypothesis, but I'm not sure about this. So to conclude, let's just look in a little bit more detail at Syria, without pretending to go into all the ins and outs of what is a increasingly tragic and desperate situation. Because the question of possible intervention in Syria, whether to halt the bloodshed or to support the rebels and overthrow the regime, has been there from the beginning of the revolt. The similarities with and differences from Libya have been exhaustively debated, and the issue of consistency or lack of it constantly raised. The basic question is this. If we were ready to intervene in Libya to save the population of Benghazi and get rid of Gaddafi, why are we not prepared to do the same to get rid of Bashir and save Aleppo? Bashir's regime is obviously as steeped in blood as any you can think of by now. It worked in Libya, more or less, why wouldn't it work in Syria? So why have the Western powers been so reluctant to intervene militarily, uh, even to give weapons to the rebels, for example? I think the answer lies in a combination of geography, military reality, and above all, politics. Syria is far smaller and more heavily populated than Libya. And the wide open spaces of Libya, where air power could be used against regime targets without threatening civilians too much, scarcely exist. Militarily, Syria is also better armed and probably a much tougher nut to crack than Libya, and has important backers in Russia and Iran, which Libya did not have. But the main reasons are, I think, essentially political. Syria is in a far more sensitive and volatile neighborhood than Libya, with the likelihood of spillover of any conflict into Israel, Lebanon, Jordan, and Turkey. It's far more sensitive and divided internally from an ethnic and religious point of view, 
there is little or no chance of Security Council authorization of even a limited military operation given Russian and Chinese attitudes. And perhaps above all, the rebel opposition itself is divided and without united or clear aims for the future, even more so than was the case in Libya. Syrian rebel ranks contain apparent Sunni Islamic extremists and even al-Qaeda elements, as well as genuine Democrats and a range of others fed up with the regime for one reason or another. If we were to intervene militarily, therefore, we would be doing so on behalf of a cause containing people of whom we would be highly suspicious in any other context. Indeed, one of the reasons for not arming the rebels ourselves, even though we know others are doing it, is the fear that the arms might in due course be used against us in one form or another. In other words, although there are few reasons to sympathize with the Bashir regime, and lots of reasons to want it to disappear, there are also lots of concerns about what might follow from many points of view, and plenty of arguments about not wanting to be part of such an uncertain and risky process, despite the ever stronger calls from the rebels themselves for us to help them. To put my own cards on the table, I remain personally extremely cautious about the idea of any military intervention in Syria despite my sympathy for what the civilian population are going through and the terrible things the regime are doing to their own people. And the sometimes loose talk of the creation of safe havens inside Syria or the no-fly zone or of helping Turkey more, as if these are relatively easy options, not really involving military action. Let's be clear, they are not. Each, each of them, in effect, means declaring war on Syria and taking out not only their air force, but also their air defences. There are no easy solutions available. Now, I should add, to repeat a point I made at the beginning, that the absence of military intervention does not mean Western countries are not intervening at all in the situation in Syria. On the contrary, they're doing so in several different ways. Diplomatically, by calling very clearly for the removal of the present regime, economically through sanctions, and politically through support for the rebels, despite the doubts, including with non-lethal assistance. This kind of non-military pressure could also be much greater if the Russians and the Chinese, particularly the former, could be persuaded to drop their worries, uh, to drop their support for the regime and their self-interested worries about seeming to accept the doctrine of allowable interference in the affairs of other countries because their regimes are undemocratic or doing things the West does not approve of. Now, I don't know how the Syrian situation is likely to evolve. Frankly, I see little current possibility of a peacefully negotiate out, uh, negotiated outcome and every likelihood of a violent and messy end to the present civil war. The pressures to intervene may well still increase again, especially if the tensions between Syria and Turkey continue to be ratcheted up. But on present indications, I still see little chance of the main Western countries being willing to do so. Now, does that mean we have finally learned some wisdom and restraint? despite the apparent success of the Libyan intervention. I do think that the experiences of Iraq and Afghanistan have taught us the wisdom of avoiding another ground entanglement in the Middle East, have reinforced in our minds the limits of military power, and have given us perhaps a welcome degree of humility about our ability to build effective societies after we've intervened militarily. Unfortunately, I doubt we have learned these lessons for good. Other intervention moments may well come along, when non-military efforts to affect events come to seem inadequate, and when remote strikes, for example, by drones, legal or not, will not be seen as enough. 
And the pressure's on our politicians to do something, to do something more, will once again mount, and they may not resist them. We may sooner or later face the decision about what to do about Iran's nuclear efforts. And I fear the temptation to reach for the military option will once again be strong. It may indeed be that one or more of these moments I'm talking about will be the real thing. The Rwanda-type situation will be absolutely should do something. But in any case, I'm not certain we've, I'm certain we haven't heard the last of these issues and that the arguments about the legality, legitimacy, and effectiveness of international interventions are bound to continue. So finally, what is my own response to my own exam question? What can inter international military intervention of the kind I've been talking about, when, sorry, when can international military intervention of the kind I've been talking about be justified and effective? Rarely is my short answer. I do, <laughs> I do believe that humanitarian intervention must remain in the international community's toolbox as the last resort for unacceptable Rwanda-style situations. Unfortunately, it's impossible to define in advance what such cases will look like. Each will be sui generis, and each must involve elements of political and other judgment at the time, which cannot be over-specified or completely regulated in advance by laying down detailed rules or by pretending that international law is like national law and can somehow cover every eventuality. But the genuine cases are likely to be rare. And because coercive outside intervention raises so many short and long-term problems and produces so many unintended consequences, whenever the issue arises, we must think through all the angles very carefully indeed, even where events are moving fast, before we intervene. We need to learn properly the lessons of past failures and consult those who were involved at the time. On each occasion, we need to reflect on whether we really know what we're doing and ask ourselves some basic questions. Is the goal achievable? Are we the right people to be trying to achieve it? Do we have the legitimate right to be trying to achieve it? And what are the broader consequences likely to be? Even once we seem to have answered these questions satisfactorily, I would say we still need to reflect once again before we finally decide whether we should go in. There speaks a cautious diplomat, no doubt. But more caution and more nuance in some of our recent analysis and decisions would not, in my view, have gone amiss. The risks and consequences of getting it wrong are too high for any other approach to be acceptable. We have too often in the past intervened in haste and repented at leisure. So let us at least learn this lesson for the future. Thank you very much.